And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, August 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Katie Wu. We're here to talk about the AL and NL Central. And when I started looking for guests who could join me this week with Keith out on a well-deserved vacation, I thought there's no person better to discuss these two divisions because Katie lives right in the middle of it. And Katie is so good at digging into the central divisions. She's on location in Kansas City right now. The level of dedication it takes to go to Kansas City in August to watch central division teams is off the charts. So Katie, thank you for joining me. Well, DBR, thanks for, for having me. And also, it makes sense. You know, big, big showdown in Missouri this weekend between the last place Cardinals and the last place Royals. Can't miss that. So looking forward to it. <laughs> hey, there's some Cardinal stuff we may get to at the end of the episode. Just kind of looking forward to the 2024 version of that team. Matthew Libertor pitched pretty well on Thursday night. But we're going to focus on the teams in contention right now. Let's start on the AL side. Twins versus Guardians. I looked at the Fangraphs playoff odds this morning. The Twins are at 86.3%. They only have a three and a half game lead over Cleveland, so that number seems a little high. The Guardians are at 12.1%. Twins fans are not going to be happy to hear this. The Pythagorean win loss is actually three wins better than their actual records. The Twins have missed out on some opportunities by that particular metric. They're actually about to start a three-game series in Philly on Friday. Recent form's not terrible. They're 16-14 and 14 in their last 30, but they have lost three in a row at a pretty bad time. They opened the week with their biggest lead in the division of the entire season. They had a five-and-a-half game lead when this week started. So what do you think of the Twins in general? I have, on a few instances, tried to defend them as a team that is better than some of its previous versions, teams that have made the playoffs and then just been obliterated by usually the Yankees. They're not really backing that up so far. There's still some time left. Are there reasons to be optimistic that the Twins can put their foot on the gas pedal and eventually just open up this lead and kind of run away with a division that the Guardians don't really seem to want to win all that badly? I'd be more inclined to be pro-Twins if I saw a little bit more hustle or effort at the trade deadline from their front office. Um, I don't think either team really wants to win this division just based on how they approach the trade deadline and opportunities to make either team better in a division that really isn't competitive at all. It's a, it's a two team race for the next two months. And it seemed to me that both teams were like, eh, maybe we don't know yet. There's this big deadline that the sport has every year, but we're still not sure what we want to do, even though it's ticking down. So I was disappointed to not see the twins do anything. Minnesota was in St. Louis for the trade deadline. And you're just kind of always immersed in the action on that day. And I kept looking over at the twin side and there's nothing going on. And then five o'clock came and there still was, had been nothing going on. So 
Do I think the Twins can probably win this division? Yes. Do I think they can run away with it? Probably not, just because I see them and the Guardians as so equal. It would have been nice to see them boost their team at the trade deadline, um, and I don't count Dallas Keuchel as one of those additions, although he did look fine in his Twins first Twins outing. But to me, it would have been I would be more inclined to be a Twins believer if they showed a little bit of faith in their roster and, and boosting it uh, at the deadline. Yeah, Dallas Keuchel, I think, is a, a nice depth starter at this stage of his career. That first line out, five innings, scattering eight hits, uh, not striking anybody out. That's sort of the guy you expect right. him to be. The good news for the Twins, Joe Ryan is back very soon from that groin injury. Ryan wasn't pitching very well before he went on the shelf. If they can get him back to more of his first-half form, that's a huge lift for the rotation. So I'm really curious to see if they end up going with a six-man rotation for a little while because when you look at Sonny Gray, Pablo Lopez, Ryan's recent injury, uh, the way the Dodgers always handled Kenta Maeda and then his more recent arm injury that he had in Minnesota, they may have a case for just trying to keep everybody healthy as long as possible, taking advantage of that depth by using Keuchel a bit longer. And performance may dictate how long they can get away with something like that. But I'm right there with you. The trade deadline behavior of both of the AL Central teams that are in contention. For the Guardians, it was good that they addressed some of their long-term needs. It just felt strange because the division has been within reach, even though it probably shouldn't be. I think you know, the Bieber injury may have been the, the final straw for them. Bieber getting hurt maybe led them to say, okay, we can afford to trade Aaron Savale. We've got enough young pitching. We'll just see what happens with that group. Josh Bell leaves because they end up getting Kyle Manzardo back from the Aaron Savale trade, but Manzardo may not help them at all this season, even though he makes them better in the long run. The other thing that happened to the Guardians that could just be a pretty devastating blow for them is the Josh Naylor injury. This mm -hmm. is a team that has not had power in this lineup. Goes back to last season. That is their big flaw. Naylor is one of their few good power hitters. He suffered an oblique injury. It's a three to six week injury, so that could linger on into September. And I think that's like among the issues I can see with that team. These teams have a couple of series, one, I believe at the end of August, one in the early part of September. So I could see it staying close until then. And if the twins come away with two series wins in those series, that might be that last extra push they need to really, you know, make this a six, seven, eight game lead and, and kind of coast through September. The bigger question with the twins for me continues to be, okay, let's say they win the division. Are they different? Are they better than past versions? The rotation still leads Major League Baseball in strikeout minus walk percentage. That was surprising to me back in June, the first time I brought it up. I expected to look at it today and see them fall to third, fourth, fifth. But they're right there. They're still atop the league in terms of the strikeout minus walk rate for that group of starters. The bullpen's good. They're top 10 in that same category. They've got some electric guys, Joan Duran being kind of the most prominent among them. I think the other part of this team that I, I keep getting tripped up on, their roster construction seems flawed because they strike out so much. They've got a 27.1% strikeout rate. It's the highest of any lineup in Major League Baseball. It generates a sort of a league average result by WRC+, but I think when you strike out as much as the twin strikeout, you have some very high highs and some very low lows. So I think there's a there's some danger in that, right? They're fourth in Major League Baseball in barrels per plate appearance. They do some damage. But when I look at their depth chart, I'm not sure how they will make significant strides this season 
in correcting that particular flaw. It seems like that's just baked in for the rest of 2023. Yeah, and when you look at teams going forward that want to make an October push, you need pitching, obviously. And I do think the Twins have like inarguably the best rotation. And I do agree a six-man rotation would be beneficial over the next two months. But when I'm looking at the Twins, I'm not worried about the rotation. I'm worried about their swing and miss on stuff in the zone. Um, They lead Mm. baseball in that category. And you can barrel it up every now and then, which they do. That's how they can play this extreme high-low game. But the Twins miss a lot of balls in the zone. And if you are an offense that's hot and cold, you can't afford to go into the playoffs like that. Everyone makes a huge deal about starting pitching in the postseason, rightfully so. You can't win a postseason series if you don't have dominant starting pitching. You also can't win a postseason series if you have a fluctuating offense, because if you roll into game one of that wild card series, just presuming the AL Central will be a wild card team, and all of a sudden your bats are cold, which we've seen with the Twins, and you can't make contact in the zone, you can't capitalize on mistake pitches in the zone, you're going to be done in two games. I witnessed it with my own eyes last year with the Cardinals. Uh, that's just kind of perfect storm of a meltdown in their own wild card series. But to me, that's the most concerning stat for Minnesota. Do I think they're probably going to win the division? Yes. But we know their history. Their fan base knows the history in the playoffs. We don't need to remind the Twins fans what goes on when the when the Twins play in the postseason. But to me, I think they have the names. Um, they certainly have the names on the pitching side. Uh, if they can hold a lead in the late innings, Duran's going to shut it down. It's just a matter of can that offense, with the amount of swing and miss that they have in that zone, really carry through going forward? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that will likely nudge them in the right direction along the way. Carlos Correa, production so far in the return to Minnesota, 227, 300, 399 line. That's easily the worst slash line of his career. I don't think he's that player. I don't think he's lost it at 28. The rest of the season projections point to a guy that should hit close to 270, get on base at a 340 clip, and get back to hitting for some power. And he's one of those key guys in that lineup that doesn't strike out as much, right? Some of this is is the, the way they decided to chase Joey Gallo in free agency. They brought in Michael Taylor to be the defensive center fielder to take wear and tear off of Byron Buxton's legs. The downside of Michael Taylor is it's a lot of swing and miss in his profile as well. Uh, Matt Walner's a guy they've been relying on. Great power. Big time swing and miss. We're starting to see that as big league pitchers get more exposure to him. So uh, unless they have some depth players that they want to start turning to a little bit more just to vary that up, or unless Royce Lewis gets healthy and kind of runs through with a low K rate himself, I just don't see where the big improvements are going to come from. But I'm with you. I think they are still the team that wins this division. Uh, The other part of it for the Guardians, too, kind of looking at their side, they're dangerous because they are good in the rotation. What I would worry about is, especially without Bieber and now without Savali having traded him, as you continue to push heavy workloads on Tanner Bybee, Gavin Williams, and Logan Allen, there's a very good chance those guys become less effective when the calendar flips to September, right? You're talking about young starters going through this for the very first time. So I think that's where the bottom could also fall on them. They may get Tristan McKenzie back. It's just hard to rely on that at this point. So uh, too much has gone wrong, I think, in Cleveland to this point, and they're so similar to the roster they had last year. I think this is going to be a really telling offseason for them. Can they find some more power to complement some of the contact-heavy profiles they have kind of built this core around in Cleveland? 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's go to the NL Central for a bit. You get to see these teams a lot, being the Cardinals beat writer for the Athletic. Between the Cubs, the Reds, and the Brewers, who looks like the most complete team to you based on what you've seen this season? That's a good question because I feel like I've seen all of these teams at their highs and their lows at the same time. Um, But the last time I saw the Chicago Cubs was a couple of weeks ago before the trade deadline, before they decided to keep Bellinger and Stroman. And that series that they played against the Cardinals ended up, I think, kickstarting the front office's decision to keep those players. And once they made that decision, I had this gut feeling that the, uh, proposal my dad made in the beginning of the season that the Cubs were going to win the division and I laughed at would now be coming true. Uh, I think the Cubs are the most complete team and I, the Reds are a great story because they're so young because they were so, so bad last year. And because there was nobody looking at the Reds and putting them on the radar and saying, this could be a postseason team, but they didn't do enough to address that starting rotation at this uh, deadline. And maybe the their competitive window opened up before the front office expected it to maybe the front office has such a detailed plan in Cincinnati to be competitive for years to come and that's why but again it goes back to what we said about the AL Central I mean this is a a division right now that's separated by two and a half games and three teams and the Reds could very easily win it but because they didn't go out and get any starting pitching and help that rotation really it makes me less inclined to be a Reds believer I think the Cubs probably have the the leadership, the skill set, and the exposure to hold off a Brewers team that plays good baseball. But if I was if I was going to really like proclaim the division today, I would not be surprised if Chicago wins it. It's really interesting because each of these three teams has had a stretch where they really have felt like the clear front runner. Early on, it was the Brewers. The Reds, once they promoted everybody in June, was the team that everyone talked about. And more recently, it's, oh, look out for the Cubs. They look legit kind of working backwards off that group. I mean, Cody Bellinger looks like an MVP again. Uh, did your dad think Cody Bellinger was going to do that? Like what what was the <laughs> basis of that prediction? Did he give you reasoning behind that or was it just the thing that he's like, "No, this is going to happen." No, I think he just like just felt a connection. I don't know. Um, I liked the Cody Bellinger signing to Chicago. I thought it was low risk. There wasn't a bunch of a uh, a bunch of consequences to that signing where if things went bad, it'd be a bad look for Chicago. It was just, "Hey, let's try to find this former MVP." some some grace here try to find some some sort of semblance of that old form and they found it he looks fantastic this is the Cody Bellinger we remember from years ago on the same side or same division you also have Christian Yelich while not as good of a season as Cody Bellinger certainly much much better that we've seen in years prior from Yelich so for me again 
I, I can make an argument for either team, but I'm just looking at the Cubs. I'm looking at how they've clicked lately. I think they have a great blend of veteran talent that's done it before and young upcoming talent they can bet on for the next couple of seasons. And let's be honest, all three of these teams really should feel some sort of pressure because when are you ever going to see St. Louis in the last in last place in the standings, really, ever? Um, I think it's been since the NL Central was formed that the Cardinals were in last place for this long. So I think there's a little bit of pressure on all three organizations to win right now because it's such a novelty to not have to worry about the Cardinals and their weird September push they always do. I mean, it's really anyone's division of those three teams, but I'm still going with Chicago. It's pretty open at this point. Now, the other thing the Cubs have done really well is they've quietly put together a nice bullpen, right? They've got a few things that have happened recently. The lineup's been red hot. It's not just Bellinger. It's Mike Talkman. It's Nico Horner, Dansby Swanson, Ian Happ. Uh, they added Jamer Candelario at the trade deadline, too, who probably was the best position player that actually got moved. So they were able to get that upgrade. All of that has led them to a 19-11 and 11 record over the last 30 games, the fourth best in the league during that span. And they've got Jamison Tyon pitching more like the pitcher we all expected him to be when he signed there. The guy he was in the first half was just all over the place. His last five starts have been really good. He's kind of turned it around since June. He's got a 276 ERA, just three homers allowed in those last five outings. But that bullpen... Adbert Alzali, Mark Leiter Jr., Julian Merriweather, not a lot of household names. Sure, if you're a Cubs fan or a fantasy player, you might be familiar with those guys. But otherwise, that's a relative group of unknowns that's really stepped up and, and helped them protect leads in the late innings. Yeah, absolutely. And you love to see that if you're a baseball fan in general, because you're going to look at this Cubs bullpen and be like, who is this guy? And all of a sudden, Alzali comes out and shuts your team down for the ninth inning. And you're like, oh, now I'm familiar with this. I think that's what makes the Cubs sneaky good is because they have a bunch of names like you na that, that you mentioned that are recognizable. But I think one of their strongest assets is their bullpen. And you look at your, that bullpen and you're like, who are these guys? But I think as we go down the stretch, more and more baseball fans are going to become familiar with the late inning high leverage arms that the Cubs have because they're really trustworthy and they win a lot of ball games for that team. So totally with you on board there with the relief pitching in Chicago. Probably going to see a lot more Cubs games featured too, which mm -hmm. is going to shine the spotlight on some guys that haven't really received it just yet. Uh, as far as the Reds go, they have fallen on some difficult times more recently. They ran into that Cubs team during their recent stretch, 12 and 18 in their last 30 Lots of strikeouts up and down that lineup, and Ellie De La Cruz is electric. He is a player that I think we're going to watch and be in awe of for a very long time, but he's going through typical early adjustments that a lot of young players have to go through. He's seeing big league pitching for the first time. He's still doing some damage when he makes contact, but he's running a 50 WRC plus over his last 25 games with a 40% strikeout rate. And I think if this continues for another three or four weeks, if this lingers on into September, that creates a bit of a problem for the Reds. You're kind of forcing through the development, and then you kind of run out of time in the minor leagues to send them back down to AAA to sort of get the confidence back. I'm very curious to see what the next 25 games will bring. I believe in the talent. I think that would be a huge part of the Reds hanging around is finding another level for Ellie De La Cruz in the short term, even if he's not going to be a superstar right away. You can't have a guy playing at this level in a prominent spot in your lineup. Uh, I think the other key for the Reds is getting Hunter Green back. He's working his way through a rehab assignment. Two more starts before he gets back. 
Hunter Green is electric. If he comes back and he's pitching well, that goes a long way because the biggest questions for me about the Reds can continue to be about that rotation. How much do we trust that group of starters? I know they're getting a little bit more out of Graham Ashcraft recently. That goes a long way. Andrew Abbott's been really good for them. But Hunter Green's the kind of guy that if you get into one of those short wildcard series and you throw Green in one of those games, he can just steal the game for you. He's that good. And I think that stands out in a group of Reds pitchers that will likely be upgraded over the course of the winter, right? If you think about moves Nick Crawl and the Reds are likely to make between now and opening day 2024, adding to the rotation seems like an almost certain thing they'll do. Yeah, and you know, maybe with Hunter Green's impending arrival, that's why the front office in Cincinnati decided not to go pursue some starting pitching depth. And also the starting pitching market was insane, this trade deadline. So I can understand that along with the argument of they don't really want to give away any of their young core, and rightfully so, because we saw in June what that young core can look like. Um, I'm not really in the in the camp that says getting a player back from injury is like making a trade, because it's very much not. But when you have a player, uh, I mean, like like Hunter Green, he is just nasty. That he's, I completely agree. If he comes out in a short wild card series, you are not feeling good if you're the opposing team about your game one chances. I mean, I think he can totally revitalize not just that rotation, but that team with his arrival. But I do agree with you about Ellie De La Cruz. And let me be the first to say, I am a huge Ellie De La Cruz fan. Uh, one of his first games in his career came in St. Louis and Trent Rosecrans, our Reds writer, came over and was like, hey, just so you know, this dude is fast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've read the scouting reports. I'm sure he's fast. And then I watched him play and I flew over to the other side of the press box and I was like, dude, this guy is fast. Uh, and he's just so exciting to watch because he plays the game a little differently. And I think when you have a young prospect with as much allure as De La Cruz has, those struggles that every player when he's promoted is supposed to have, those things really get magnified. Um, De La Cruz is supposed to struggle. He, opposing pitchers are supposed to make adjustments against him. He will figure it out. But the timing of this, like you mentioned, is unique because – they can't just option him to the minor leagues after September because there is no minor leagues. I mean, what are you going to do there? Um, and if he's going to be a core part of whatever playoff push Cincinnati is trying to do, he needs to figure out how to be successful at the big league level. So I don't think the fact that he's struggling is a big deal. I think that's what is supposed to happen. Young players are supposed to struggle. They are supposed to have difficulties adjusting to the big leagues in their first time. But I do think that the Reds are, are banking on De La Cruz to make those adjustments sooner rather than later because he's such a dynamic part of that lineup. And if you have a healthy Hunter Green and a consistent Ellie De La Cruz, you suddenly feel a lot better about whatever playoff push you're trying to go for in Cincinnati. Absolutely. Long-term future still extremely bright for Ellie De La Cruz. And I guess if you said bet on him making the adjustments or not making the adjustments in what's left of the season, I would still bet on him making the adjustments. It's just Absolutely. been a, a really rough stretch that's overlapped the Reds uh, playing six below 500 here in their last 30. Let's talk about the Brewers for a minute. Most people don't like to talk about the Brewers with me because I talk about them too much. Christian Yelich is not MVP Yelich again, but he's pretty close to it. If you told most Brewers fans would you settle for a 290, 374, 469 line? I think you would have found universally from every corner of the parking lot at American Family Field, every Brewers family said, yes, we will absolutely take that. I think the bigger problem for the Brewers is that they made moves at the deadline. They added Carlos Santana. They added Mark Canna. They promoted Sal Freelich. And Freelich is hitting cleanup for them a lot. He's a fun player. 
he's kind of a throwback too. You know, he does he chokes up with two strikes, does some things, just puts the ball in play. And for a team that's had a lot of swing and miss in its lineup in recent years, I see that approach being a good way to balance some things out. It just doesn't feel like they did enough. It feels like they did miss this opportunity. Like the thing that I've looked at for the last three or four seasons now with this Brewers team is Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, when they're both healthy, are a really good one too. Freddie Peralta has more velo this year. He has looked really good recently. That first three can actually hold its own, probably against any rotations, top three, up and down the AL or the NL. Where I worry about this team, say, okay, let's say the Brewers win the NL Central and they make the playoffs. Let's say they even get through the wild card round. Against Atlanta, against the Dodgers, can they hit top-end pitching in those series when it matters most? Is that lineup good enough? Mathematically, yes, it's always possible. We know any team in the postseason can go and win and get through to the World Series and win there. It's possible. But my concern is that they just didn't add enough quality to this lineup unless a healthy Rowdy Telez or a healthy Jesse Winker, like the guys they were relying on earlier in the year who got hurt and were underperforming come back and meet expectations. Maybe then this is more of like a league average lineup, but I just don't see it, Katie. Like, am I missing something? For, I watch this team almost every day. Is there something I'm missing in that Brewers lineup that could go right and help propel them to a much higher level than we've seen so far? I think the question that you're asking on if this Brewers team can compete against the other National League juggernauts like the Dodgers, like the Braves, is the question we're asking about all the teams in the NL Central right now. Can the Reds hold their own? Can the Cubs hold their own? And I think the answer for all three is not likely. Just because you look at how the other divisions are stacked up and where the NL Central is, I mean, it's no secret the NL Central is the least competitive division here. And... I agree that Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff are probably the most underrated one, two uh, starting rotation for potential playoff teams. Uh, maybe that's just because a Milwaukee small market. I don't know because both of those guys are electric um, and I would absolutely take them against most of the other one, twos and any of the playoff teams that we're seeing or are going to see. But I agree if I don't know if that offense is going to be enough. I liked Mark Canna and Carlos Santana. I like those signings. I think they were needed Again, I don't know if they were enough, but also I'm not quite sure what the Brewers front office could have done because there just were not a lot of bats available. Candelario was the guy to get, right? And when he went off, there was like, who's who's left? Unless you were swinging a major trade and there were also not a lot of selling teams this deadline, I'm not quite sure where that offensive upgrade would have come externally. So you're going to be relying on guys like Christian Yelich, which again, really great to see him find that form again. I'm sure Brewers fans are thrilled for him just based on what he's gone through over the last couple of seasons and you're gonna rely on these young guys that you maybe weren't anticipating uh, at the start of the season that's what I really like about the Brewers it seems each time I go to American Family Field and I write in the lineup the six through nine hitters I'm like, who are these guys and then by the end I'm like oh these guys are really good players I don't know where they came from but they they do a really good job of just promoting major league ready talent and plugging holes with that. I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to win them a pennant, but it will make for an exciting NL Central down the stretch. Yeah, and I guess you could probably look at any one of these lineups we've talked about today and pick one or two players who have underperformed in it's a they will likely be better. And you're probably not wrong for, for making that assumption based on rest of season projections. Willie Adames is that player for the Brewers. And 
if you get Willie Adames back to the levels he's been at the last couple of seasons, that goes a really long way. The William Contreras trade during the winter paying off in a big way. Looks like a, a cornerstone player for them for the next half decade. So between Yelich, Adames, Contreras, they could be really strong at the top. The Canha Santana additions could be nice for that kind of second level of the lineup. And some of the no-name players or the lesser-known players that you've, you've mentioned, Andrew Monasterio is a regular for them right now. It's just a kind of a journeyman minor leaguer of sorts who's come up and played good ball, gets on base, plays a couple spots on the infield, has been just a fantastic glue player for them around a lot of different injuries. He's probably not a guy you're relying on as much in September and October, but he's been good enough to sort of keep them afloat. Uh, Joey Weimer has been the most pleasant surprise for me. I think it's it's sort of like glove first. Like I trust the defense above all else. He's a great defensive center fielder. He has a really unusual setup and swing. I, I wonder long term if he's ever going to be a guy that can cut the strikeout rate a lot lower than it is right now. 27.4% for a rookie is not bad, but it's a pretty wild swing that generates that power. I wonder if they can find something else in that system to help them out. I've wondered even if Jackson Churio, one of the top prospects in baseball, really young playing at double A, if there's some case for him to actually debut before the end of this season and have him try to provide some kind of offensive spark. But that's a lot to put on a guy who's 19 years old, you know, to call him up in the middle of a postseason push and, and expect him to be a prominent contributor on a team that really needs that lift. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure to put on a guy. And I know that skipping AAA is not as uncommon as it used to be. But I think when you are the Brewers and you know that this division is probably going to go down to the wire, that's a lot of pressure to put on this 19-year-old kid, um, especially for what we just talked about with Ellie De La Cruz. They're going to struggle at some point. And uh, the last thing you want to do to someone who figures to be a staple in your organization for years to come is put them in a position where they don't have a lot of opportunity to succeed. I thought the Cardinals did that with Jordan Walker to start the year. I don't think they gave him the right opportunity to be successful. And credit to Jordan Walker for handling it the way that he did and still putting up some really good offensive numbers this year. But I think if you're the Brewers, you really have to count on those guys that you mentioned, the veteran guys, the heart of the lineup. You hope that top of the lineup can generate enough offensive production. And I think the Brewers pitching is, is pretty decent. Again, uh, you have a... You take a one-run lead to the ninth, Devin Williams is going to secure that for you. There's no, I mean, I don't even, when Devin Williams is pitching, I don't even pay attention really because I know the game is over, right? <laughs> so there, there are things to be optimistic about for Brewers fans. To me, it's recognize where the holes are in your lineup, which are, it's the second half, and trust the top end of your rotation and the top end of your lineup to produce and just get the game to Devin Williams in the ninth. Yeah, the bullpen behind Williams has been better than I expected Joel Piamps was part of that William Contreras trade. At the time it happened, I was like, oh, just kind of a throw-in guy. Maybe he will work the sixth inning. He's been the primary setup guy. Uh, Andrew Chafin was the other trade deadline addition. Gives him another lefty in addition to Hobie Milner, who's kind of just lefty funk, as I like to call it. He's not a guy that's going to come in there and, and just strike everybody out, but gives you a really different look. And then Elvis Piguero has also been really good, too. He was part of that Hunter Renfro trade they made during the offseason. So you look at that group, Abner Uribe is one of those guys that throws gas and could be in a more prominent role sooner rather than later. It reminds me of Camilo Doval's promotion a couple of years ago at the Giants where they brought him up. The minor league numbers were great in terms of K rate, a little high in terms of walk rate, and they sort of let him work it out on the job. That's what I see for Abner Uribe. I think he's just filthy. So if you need to throw someone out there in the fifth or sixth that 
is almost untouchable, you could do that in a postseason game and it might actually look really good for them. The last question I have for you about this group of teams, it's sort of the Brewers question. The Brewers have the best defense in baseball by a lot of measures. How much does that soften the blow of having a below average lineup? I mean, they have the right pitching and they turn an extraordinary number of balls in play into outs. So can they be kind of a different look sort of team like by lineup? They're very similar to the Giants in terms of mm-hmm. how they score runs and what their flaws are. But the huge difference for me between the Brewers and the Giants is the Giants tend to play more guys out of position. They're getting better results with it this year than they have in past years. Does an elite defense actually move the needle for you when you start evaluating these teams for October? Coming from someone who used to cover an elite defense, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And I think having a defense that has been so good as Milwaukee's this year benefits both sides of the ball, right? You have a defense that is not giving away runs, so your offense doesn't have to come up with more when it's already difficult for this Brewers offense to come up with the ones they need at times. You also have a rotation that ultimately super benefits from the defense behind them. They can make exceptional plays, keep guys off the bases, it's to me an elite defense is the sign of a sneaky playoff team. Uh, we saw I, the Cardinals in 2021 sneak in because of their electric 17 game winning streak, but that was propelled by their defense. So, and the Cardinals did not have a good offense in 2021. They didn't have a good offense at all, and they were still able to win ball games because they had a smart defense and a good defense. And I know the the shift rules limit defensive positioning in a way, but there's still a way to be successful in that regard. And I think the Brewers have figured it out. So yeah, if you're looking for a silver lining that people probably aren't talking about when it comes to this Brewers team, it's just how good their defense has been. And that goes a long way when your offense knows they don't have to come up with extra runs because their defense isn't giving any away. It's pretty remarkable too. It's been mostly three guys that weren't part of the plan last year, weren't even on the roster last year between Contreras behind the plate, Bryce Terang, Struggling with the bat, he's been phenomenal at second base. He's he's good enough to play shortstop in the big leagues, so he's an excellent second baseman. And then Weimer, who we talked about earlier, uh, and recently Keith Law and I were talking about Sal Freelich. Freelich is a good center fielder too, so they've got a lot of options. Uh, but I'm with you on the value of the defense in, in particular. I, I think it gets overlooked sometimes. If you like outs above average, if you like defensive runs saved, the Brewers are second in both, so it doesn't really matter which defensive metrics you look at. They tend to grade out very, very well. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. We should talk about the Cardinals for a few minutes. I mean, you spend so much time writing about them, covering them, watching them. The Jordan Walker thing, that's in that group of preventable problems. And it was sort of the first of a few things the Cardinals did this year that just were not typical of their organization. It was like they didn't do what you'd expect them to do to correct having too many outfielders. And then there was sort of the the later than expected decision to move Jordan Walker to the outfield, right? If you as a front office know Nolan Arenado is our third baseman for the next several years, why not begin that process of moving Jordan Walker to the outfield sooner? Because it, when he got demoted earlier this year, Katie, it was it was defense, right? It wasn't as bad. I think he was league average by the bat right out of the shoot, which is very good for a player that young. So. Where are you at with Walker now, having seen this for 74 games at the big league level? How do you feel like his defense has progressed over the course of the season? Does he look more comfortable in the outfield today than he did back when the season started? I think the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals moniker should be preventable problems. They did this to themselves. (laughs) And Jordan Walker, how they handled that is is a huge part of it. Because when he was demoted in April, they did not cite defense as one of those reasons. Uh, President Baseball Operations, John Mozeliak and Ollie Marmol, their manager, both said there, they admitted there was a crowd in the outfield. There was. We can get to that. <laughs> um, and they also said, and this, this one really still throws me for a loop, that Jordan Walker's ground ball rate was too high. And he needed to go to the minor leagues to work on getting the ball in the air, despite him being one of the main offensive contributors in April for a team that was really, really bad. And it did not get better in that regard going forward just spoiler alert did not get better in st louis after april so i think it goes back to knowing jordan walker in the minor leagues when he was the top prospect double a phenom and he's playing third base every single day still and yes nolan arenado still had not opted in officially for the remaining five years of his contract but he was going to opt in right it was really just a matter of when he was going to make it official so the first game that jordan walker played in the outfield came the day of the 2022 trade deadline He essentially played two months in the outfield professionally, came to spring training and continued to work. He was more comfortable in right field. So they put him in left field in spring training to kind of figure things out. That makes sense. You know, spring training is to figure things out and get more comfortable. But 
was he super comfortable in right field to begin with? Didn't look like it, and that's not a fault of his own. He'd only, again, been playing the outfield professionally for a couple of months. So they do something very uncardinal like in terms of bringing up their top prospect on the opening day roster and skipping AAA. Usually the Cardinals are very methodical. They have a plan. They don't deviate from it. I thought that was the best thing to do. Jordan Walker earned it. He had an exceptional spring. The bat was there. Everything was good. They did not. They I've never really gotten the roster construction of this team because they did start the season with like six corner outfielders and they maintained that Jordan Walker was going to play every day because what's the point in bringing up your top prospect and skipping AAA if he's not going to play every day? Totally makes sense. And he does, he does play every day. And apparently he hit the ball on the ground too much because by the end of April, with guys like Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson, Lars Newtbar, unable to get consistent at bats, they'd, get, they'd play like once every two or three days and Ollie Marmel would have to rotate a new lineup of sorts in the outfield. They could not find any consistency. Something had to give. So they optioned Jordan Walker and said he needs to work on getting the ball in the air more. Since Jordan Walker has come back, those numbers, I don't have them right off the top of my head, but they've been right about the same. And his offense has been pretty darn good. And all of a sudden, we're not talking about the ground ball rate. And we're talking about how much he's struggling in the outfield still, which, again, is to be expected because maybe as of a week ago, it had marked the one year of him playing professionally in the outfield. It is really hard for a top prospect in any organization, but especially an organization that was expected to win, as always, to come out and perform in a position they don't know and to continuously get run out there and really learn trial by fire. Um, again, I think Jordan Walker has done an exceptional job in handling all of this, but it certainly seems like the Cardinals maybe butchered his first year in ways that they didn't have to. The good news is it didn't crater his development at the play. I mean, the ground ball rate is a little high, but it's not the kind of problem you look at and say, oh, we have a year before we can trust him as an everyday contributor. 22.9% K rate, you're happy with that. This is a guy who's a, a young rookie. It's a 20 homer, 10 stolen base sort of pace so far. That's really good, all things considered. How do they resolve this? You have to think that what we saw at the trade deadline was just sort of like the beginning of a retooled Cardinals roster. I imagine they're going for the quick adjustments and trying to contend again next year but how do you see them fixing this logjam is it something more creative like possibly trading paul goldschmidt or is it just trading someone from the outfield depth what's your idea for the best path forward for the cards well john mozalek made it very clear that he does not that he wants to field a competitive team in 2024 that's their main prerogative they hope this season never happens again um, to do so, that they have to address significant log jams. I don't think Goldschmidt or Arnado are going anywhere. I think they are the cornerstone staples of a contending team. If you want to contend next year, you keep those two guys. You keep the 2022 reigning National League MVP and the second runner-up. I think that's just where they're at. Um, they're, the Cardinals are lucky to be in this position, and I say this lightly, because right now they can throw Jordan Walker out there in the outfield every single day. And a lot of that pressure has been alleviated because they're not playing for any kind of postseason. And Jordan Walker can really have an opportunity to learn from a lot of guys. And I'm not saying there's no pressure. Obviously, there's no matter when you take, uh, when, whenever you take a, a game at the major league level, there's pressure to perform there. But some of it has been alleviated. Now in the offseason, the main thing the Cardinals have to address is starting pitching. They only have two pitchers under contract next year, and that's Miles Michaelis and Steven Matz. 
Um, you can't win a lot of games with just two starting pitchers, just put, throwing that out there. So I do think there's a way that the Cardinals trade some of their outfield surplus. Tyler O'Neill will be a free agent after 2024. Dylan Carlson is just 24. And I know his numbers have regressed a little bit, but I'm firmly in the Dylan Carlson camp that there is a, an above average major league player there and his versatility from both sides of the ball, huge, uh, huge benefit for teams looking to build around their, their roster. Um, you have Alec Burleson teams are going to like him because he may not be the most defensive outfielder out there, but he has such a high contact rate. This dude never strikes out and teams like that. So there are pieces that the Cardinals can trade away. They also have Tommy Edmond, their gold glove winning infielder who played center field for them for about a month earlier in the season and was probably their best outfielder during that time. So they have things they can do to alleviate their outfield problems. And it's most likely going to come in some form of a trade to get an upper rotation starting pitcher. Yeah, I mean, Edmund can play all over. You got Mason Wynn, who at the very least will be a, I think, very good defensive shortstop from day one. So you probably want to plan on Mason Wynn being the primary shortstop for most, if not all, of next season. That sort of makes Edmund expendable in some ways, but mm -hmm. that versatility makes him an extremely viable player to keep around if you end up trading someone else from that current outfield rotation. I'm a little surprised that Paul Goldschmidt's power has fallen off this quickly. Is there anything to explain where the missing power is, or is it the kind of thing that when the season ends, we're going to look and go, oh, no, he still got to 30 home runs. He just he hit 12 in the last seven weeks, and everything's fine with Paul Goldschmidt again. Yeah, I know that's the slugging percentage has been down too as well. And I think for Goldschmidt, it's probably just a down season like most of the Cardinals this year. Um, with the exception of Nolan Arenado, it seems like most guys have taken a step back. Maybe that's just the nature of what has been a very dreadful season in St. Louis. But I don't, I'm not super concerned about the lack of power in Paul Goldschmidt with Paul Goldschmidt's offensive profile this year. He's still Paul Goldschmidt, and he, more than anyone, is perfectly capable of going on a run. But, you know, I think you think about what he's had to do for the Cardinals for the past two seasons, being on that World Baseball Classic team, maybe it's just a down year. But I think when you're looking at the overall problems of the Cardinals as a whole, I don't think the organization looks at Paul Goldschmidt and says that's one of them. I think it may be just be a down year in terms of power for him. Do you think Nolan Gorman's follow-up to his rookie season has been sort of lost but in the the overall lack of success for the team. It looks like Gorman's going to get to 30 home runs this year. There's still some swing and miss in that profile, but this is a big, big time power. To me, it seems like there's one more level there, especially if that K rate ever comes down. If, if you if you have a full season from Nolan Gorman where he gets the K rate down to about 25%, the overall production is going to be ridiculous. Yeah, we're, we're probably not talking about Nolan, Gorman, Nolan Gorman's power enough just because of the nature of the season. But when he first came up last year and he struggled and there were rumors at the trade deadline that the Cardinals could go get Juan Soto uh, and everyone, it seemed, in the Cardinals fan base was like, trade Gorman, trade Gorman, get Juan <laughs> Soto. And John Mozeliak specifically went out and told Nolan Gorman, we are not trading you because they believe they had a 30 home run hitter from the left side which the Cardinals have not had in years. And they do have that in Nolan Gorman. And the strikeout rate is always going to be high with power, especially when you're a young guy. I mean, he's just 23 years old. That K rate is always going to accompany the power. That's just the nature of the game. But as he matures and as he develops and adjusts to the major league level, 
if that K rate can come down and that power stays the same, I think you have an incredibly dynamic player. His play at second base has gotten a lot more clean. He's a natural third baseman. Something about the Cardinals drafting natural third baseman and having to switch them at the last second. Uh, but the amount of work he's done in to be their everyday second baseman should not go unnoticed there, especially with Brendan Donovan, their super utility out for the season. Um, if you have that crushing power from the left-handed side, I think he's absolutely a force for the Cardinals going forward. And it makes sense why the front office went out specifically last year and told him to his face, we're not trading you, because he certainly figures to be a big staple in that lineup going forward. Goldschmidt's contract runs out after 2024. Nolan Gorman probably becomes a first baseman at some point in the not-so-distant future, or Jordan Walker takes that spot. But you could see maybe both of those guys, first base DH, sort of splitting time at those two spots and hitting enough to completely justify it. I thought the Cardinals did well at the trade deadline, by the way, Katie. I, I just thought they they got players who are close to big league ready, and they got one guy, Takoa Roby, who I'm excited to see as he continues to advance. I think you could see Roby and probably Tink Hentz both in the big league rotation together by the end of next season. Yeah, I agreed that they had a good deadline. And it was kind of a weird concept in St. Louis because everyone was learning what it was like to sell at the same time because they haven't had a selling season under Mo's tenure for 15 years. It's the first time. So Mo went out there and said, you know, we're, we're trying to get major league ready talent. And I think he did that. And I don't think any of those guys you can put in pen to be on the opening day roster next year. But that wasn't the intention of these trades. The intention of these trades was to offload guys in their walk year. And every single guy, except for Hennessy Cabrera, who they DFA'd, that they traded was in their walk year. And they got AAA depth, which they did not have. And I think that's super beneficial and probably the best thing they could have done at the deadline because the real work in improving the roster for 2024 will be in the offseason. But the, the names that they got really boosted a farm system that was deeply lacking, especially in pitching. And it was exciting to see the organization kind of change philosophy. They usually go for the ground ball, weak contact guys, not a lot of high velo, not a lot of swing and miss. And it came to their attention pretty early on this season that they should probably change their strategy in terms of how the game has changed as well. So they've identified guys with probably bigger swing and miss than they have in the past. And I thought, while no one wanted to be in that situation, they got a pretty good return for each guy in terms of bolstering their their minor league system. Yeah, I imagine they will be active in free agency this winter too, trying to bolster that rotation because that lack of swing and miss has been well documented. It just doesn't work in today's game to have a, a contact-oriented rotation or pitchers that just simply can't miss bats. I don't know how many pitchers actually pitch the contact. I don't think that's as much of a thing as people make it out no, to it's be. It's what they like to say. It's what they like to say when they can't generate the swing and miss. They pitch to contact. No, you just don't miss bats. You wish that pitch didn't get hit at all, but you just you <laughs> threw something that wasn't smashed because that was the best thing you could do. I understand. It's something you have to do if you don't have swing and miss stuff. We are going to go on our way out the door. A few reminders. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie J. Woo. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can get a subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. That'll get you Katie's Cardinals coverage, fantasy football, stretch run stuff for baseball for teams that are in the mix, everything you want for one low price. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. We're back with you on Monday. <laughs>